Good morning. I'm never going to get tired of doing that. And maybe 10 years later, I'm still going to act like that's such a cool big deal. So, uh, hey, again, welcome. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is John. I get to serve as a lead pastor at Center. And uh, one of the privileges of my life and one of the best seasons of our life has been here with you. And so excited for what the next one looks like, too, as we keep taking steps in faith and risking for God's kingdom. Uh, whenever I do what I'm about to do, I enter into a faith risk, okay? I'm going to ask for your participation, okay? So uh, whether you're online or you're in this room, I'm going to throw up a, a dollar amount, and I just want you to throw out in the realm and spirit of being appropriate, since I know you, uh, in the realm and spirit of being appropriate, uh, share what you think this amount represents, okay? So I'm going to put a dollar amount on the screen, and ask if you just shout it out or put it in the comments what this dollar amount means. Here we go. $75,000, what does it mean? A household income, average Byron household income. Okay, keep trying, keep going. Debt, okay. Anyone else? Gideon campaign, okay. Student loans, okay. Well, you're all kind of right, but you're all kind of wrong at the same time. So that, that's the joy of me knowing the answer and you not knowing the answer, I guess. I don't get that privilege very often. Uh, but what that number represents is about 10, over the last 10 years or so, economists and scientists through the National Academy of Sciences in America, longest name ever, did this study on wealth and happiness. And what they found was as soon as you hit the threshold of 75 thousand dollars, your happiness did not increase as your dollar amount or income increased. Does that make sense? So if you are, let's just play it out. If you're making $50,000 a year household income, that means if you make 55, as you climb uh, basically up to that $75,000 mark, you really can buy happiness. Like it's possible. You can get materially happier as you get closer to that mark. But as soon as you start making over $75,000 over 33,000 Americans studied in the study said, yeah, our happiness really didn't go up after that. Now, if they were making, that didn't matter if they were making $175,000. It didn't matter if they were making $76,000. What it signified was that once you hit that threshold, you did not get happier. It, it was about the same. And so what's interesting to me, I, I saw a meme about this. I just want to show it to you because I really struggled with this because I love this. Money can't buy me happiness, but I'd much rather cry in a mansion. <laughs> like, I love that because I think there's such a temptation in our own world to really believe that. Uh, and you know what that feels like. You know the feeling of kind of the momentary happiness of a new purchase. Uh, you know, I remember when my parents, I went from a flip phone to the iPhone 4. Like to me, that moment, like that split second where I went from this ugly flip phone to an iPhone that I touched to call people and I could text people and all this kind of stuff. I remember I was so happy. I was so excited. In fact, my youngest brother, when we received these, we all got them for Christmas one year, my, myself and our three other siblings, and he just started weeping for joy, literally crying. I'm not even kidding. If he was here, I'd rat him out and tell you who it was, but like, he was just crying. He's like, thank you so much, mom. I don't deserve this. Like, we still talk about this story. I'm like, you're an idiot, okay? Like, that is the weirdest thing, but he was so happy. And you've probably done maybe a similar thing. Maybe it was not an iPhone 4, but uh, it's the same thing when you get a new car. Like, there's the pursuit, the pursuit of a new car is almost more fun than getting the new car. 
Uh, the pursuit of getting a new house, like the journey, figuring out what you like, what you don't like is great. And then you get the house and something breaks and your happiness seems to find a way to go right back down to where it was before you had the new house. The same is true uh, for me with new running shoes. I love the chase. And as soon as I get them put to my feet one run later, I'm like, yeah, these are kind of ugly and dirty and they're not that great anymore. Like you have things in your life. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> There's things, at least one of you thought that was funny. But there's things in your life or where you get them. As soon as you get them, it seems to lose some of that initial joy. And when you try to constantly live life buying happiness or kind of procuring through money what the life you really want or the life you don't have yet, at the end of the day, it's exhausting. And some of you are sitting here with thousands of dollars of debt and you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's exhausting. You feel the weight. You wake up Monday morning thinking about it. It's over your head like a dark cloud. And at some point, you can't buy happiness. And you're all smart people. I know a lot of you, and I'm assuming the rest of you are. Like, we're all smart people here. I think we've all probably figured out by now that money cannot buy happiness. That money can't buy the life we want. But here's what we do get tricked into believing. And I've got tricked into believing this, too. I may not think that money will make me happier, but I certainly act as if it'll make me safer. I may not believe that if my income doubled, that I'll just get happier, I'll have a bigger smile on my face, but I do sometimes get tricked into believing that more money will somehow insulate me from suffering, will insulate me from marital strife, will insulate me from tension at work, will insulate me from having doubts and questions about my faith, will insulate me from all these things. And what Jesus says about money that we're going to dig into for the next couple weekends, you won't hear anywhere else. What Jesus says, if you and I apply this truth to our lives, if we decide we're not just going to listen to Jesus, we're actually going to obey Jesus, which you know there's a pretty clear difference, there will be things that change in your financial picture, there will be things that change in your marriage over these next couple weeks. There will be things that change in your relationship with God over these next couple weeks. And for me, I think it's worth digging into because this has changed my life personally. Some of these texts we're going to explore have radically changed my marriage, my life, my relationship with God, and definitely my relationship with money. And so I want to invite you to turn. If you've got a device or a physical Bible here uh, to Matthew 6. Matthew 6 is really kind of the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, probably one of the most famous passages in all of the Gospels and certainly in all Scripture. And what Jesus says about money here is really, really counterintuitive. And what I think is interesting, we're going to, again, look at the Gospel of Matthew today. Matthew was a former tax collector. So if anyone understood the tensions around money in the culture, it was Matthew. He understood the stress. He understood the divisiveness in homes. He understood the pursuit of wealth and the pursuit of, and what greed does, does to your heart. And so when he captures Jesus's words, I think it's even more significant. He's writing to a Jewish audience here that's under Roman rule. And we talked a lot about the empire and Roman rule over the last eight weeks and Jesus people. And as we start out this new series, he's writing to a very similar group of people. These Jews had different challenges in one another. They had different wealth levels, different incomes in one another, but they all had the same thing in common. Every single one of them had the, had the temptation, just like you and I do, to try to allow money and the control of our money to bring us happiness and bring us joy 
and bring us contentment. In fact, they would have known really popular verses like Proverbs 18. Proverbs 18.10 is this incredible proverb in the scriptures uh, that talks about the idea that, that people who follow God, they run to God for their safety, but the wealthy run to their riches for safety and are disappointed. Proverbs 18.10, they would have had that on their Facebook cover photo or at least like a calligraphy beautiful thing over their oven. Like that's kind of what they would have known it. And so I want us to read it out loud together because I really do think it frames this well. Let's read it together. The name of the Lord is a fortified tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it a wall too high to scale. That, my friends, is, is the temptation that we all fall into, to run to our own cities, to run to our own fortified places. And for Jews, before we read what Jesus says to them, wealth had become a clear sign of God's blessing. Pretty much every person in the Jewish community who was following God and trying to live out his way would have seen someone who made $100,000 and maybe they made fifty, and they say, God is blessing them. God is good to them. They haven't sinned recently. Obviously, they're doing really well. Their kids obey them. Like, they're in a good place. And I only make 50, so what did I do wrong? What's the problem with me? So wealth in this, this culture, in this context that Jesus is about to speak to, was an incredible clear sign of God's blessing, his security, his safety over your life. But here's the giant problem with that. And you and I already know this. Wealth can be acquired illegitimately. You've caught that, right? You, you've maybe been in situations at work in which you could underreport something and become wealthier. Uh, you may have a decision in your business or in your home which you could do something that wasn't necessarily with the utmost highest integrity. You may do things that you don't want audited is another way to put that. Like you may not want God to audit your finances in some areas. This is really interesting to me. So for in my own life, I love being the pastor of Center Church, but you know, I could ditch pastoring and I could start selling cocaine at about an average income of $100,000 a year, non-taxed, all right? So just so you know, and don't ask how I know that, all right? Like I, I looked it up, okay? I didn't have to, I didn't know that just by friends. Like I looked it up and don't ask why I looked it up, but that was just interesting to me. My point being, you can acquire wealth and quote unquote, God's blessings, prosperity in illegitimate ways. And so what Jesus says to these people in Matthew 6 is so critical, and we so often miss it. Let's read it out together. So Matthew 6, 19, here's what Jesus says. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and seal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves don't break in and seal, for where your treasure is, where your resources, your finances, your stewardship, where those things are, there your heart will be also. He keeps preaching. The eye is a lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Section three, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. 
Jesus is writing this to this group of Jewish people who are trying to figure out how to honor God with their finances and yet are drifting into temptations that you and I all face. Money will buy us happiness. Money will make me safer. More money will make me more happy. Like we, we get tempted in that same way. But here's what Jesus is saying. And if you don't catch anything else in this Sermon on the Mount passage, I just want you to hear this. With money, we tend to overestimate our control and underestimate our heart. One more time, with money specifically, and Jesus is pointing out, pointing out this reality, we tend to overestimate our own control and underestimate our heart, what God wants to do on the inside of us. We so often focus on the symptoms, and that's why it's interesting. Jesus knows that money can steal your heart, and that's why he talks about money so much. Actually, second biggest topic in the scriptures that, he, that the Lord addresses, kingdom of God is number one. Number two is money. is money. And he knows that it can grip our hearts, but he's ultimately not after just your money. And maybe you grew up in a church setting where that was true. But with money, we tend to overestimate, overestimate our control and underestimate what God wants to do in our heart. Remember the context. If you scrolled back on your device or you flip maybe a page back over, what does Jesus say immediately before he says this about money? He's teaching the disciples to pray. He's opening up the Lord's Prayer for them. And you probably maybe grew up in a household where you said that or had a Catholic background. You're very familiar with the Lord's Prayer. Well, the Lord's Prayer, if you had to summarize what it's really about, it's about God having all of us. God having our hearts, his kingdom coming, not mine. His provision, not mine. His will being done, not mine. His way of doing relationships and forgiveness, not mine. And so as you look at that, when Jesus says the Lord's Prayer, and then he talks about fasting, and then he moves on to money, it's really not just about the shallow kind of surface change. It's really about transformation in our heart. And so we're going to look at these three movements together. And you kind of saw it in your English Bible, unless you're reading Greek, which is incredible. I don't do that. But there's in the English Bible, it's really three big sections. Normally, this would be one big scroll. Matthew would just be this long piece of papyrus, like scribbled out. Scribes would have meticulously protected it. In our day and age, we're much more logical thinking. And so we just got three big blocks, and we're going to look at them together. Really, it's a conversation about two treasures, two eyes, and two masters. And we're going to just briefly touch on each one, each one of these. They all deserve sermons in and of themselves. Two treasures. What I think is interesting as you study this text, as you really look at it closely, you can see, and you're probably catching even in your Bible, there's a tone to Jesus' words. Again, he's addressing people that were very, very concerned with their wealth, very, very concerned with their investment strategy, and he's trying to poke holes in their arguments, saying, yeah, you think you're safe because you put it in a house. Well, houses in first century Israel were not constructed like they were today. And some of you are aware of being in third world countries, seeing how they do things. It's very different. Well, in first century Israel, you have these incredible extremes in weather. And sometimes it gets so hot, it would bake these mud houses, these clay structures. Basically, you'd see cracking along the side. And if you're mad enough at one of your kids, you could actually punch through the side of a wall and you could see clearly through the exterior. And so Jesus is saying, so you're going to put your money in a little safe in this one-room mud house and think that you're good. 
Well, if you're gone or you're at the grocery store and someone decides, I'd really like what my neighbor has, you can literally crack through with some tools or maybe if you got a strong enough guy and break into the house and steal it. That's what he's saying. Thieves break in and steal. Your houses are not protected. And then he talks about this whole idea of moths because another place Jews would put money is in caves. They'd put, find these remote areas and just say, if I just store up all my money out there, no one's going to find it and no one's going to take it away from me. And hopefully I'll have something for my kids down the road. Well, caves were mo- full of moisture, full of animals and rodents and would literally, if you've ever seen like a mouse's house or like their little nest or whatever, it's like they just collect things from all over. That would happen. You literally have your money removed by rodents and, or destroyed and broken down by moisture and other elements of the weather. And so Jesus is saying, so that's where you're going to put your hope? You're going to put it in a cave? Yeah, the moths are going to take care of that for you. They're going to slowly chip away at what you have. And then he talks uh, at the end of this about uh, trusting to other people. The other area uh, where you would store up treasure for yourselves, this is a reference to the Jewish banking system. They would have temple bankers and temple investment people. And so they'd say, well, surely the, the synagogue is a good place. Surely this cultural center, I can take it. So they bring it there. Well, as you know, as you read through the gospel stories, the temple was incredibly corrupt. You couldn't trust some of the people in the temple. It was an incredibly broken system. And so they'd bring their money there and somehow over the course of years begin losing money instead of like accruing money. And so Jesus is saying, so you're going to put your faith in that? He's saying, don't, don't even store up treasures for yourselves here. Don't let your primary concern be about how much can I stack up because ultimately that's going to fade away. It's going to crumble. Store up things that will last. Store up treasures for yourselves in heaven. And ultimately, this passage is about not just storing up treasures, but about Jesus being your treasure, being the object of your devotion, being the object of your attention and your resources, being the, the person who directs how you steward his resources. Let Jesus be your treasure. And then he talks about your eyes, which as a person that's worn glasses most of my life, this is my passage. Like, I connect with this. I understand what Jesus is saying. Really, this passage here is all about our focus and our vision. It's about where our heart is directed towards. The Jewish people would have used multiple metaphors that had to do with our eyes. And Jesus is using it here to talk about money because when our heart transforms, and he knew this, we gain a clear vision for our finances. Like the discussions no longer just become about, well, here's what I want to do. Well, honey, I don't want to do that. So what do we do? Well, we try to do both, right? And you've been in arguments with your spouse or your friend just like that. Well, this is what I think we should do with this investment. Well, this is what I think we should do. This is what we should do with the stimulus check. No, this is what we should do with the stimulus check. And you go back and forth, sometimes causing incredible tension. Some of your marriages have been fractured and broken, because of money fights and money problems. That's the number one cause for divorce in our, in our world right now, is money fights and money problems. And so Jesus is saying, when you allow me to transform your heart, you gain a clear picture, a clear direction, a path to really being free from money gripping your heart. You begin to control one another and even your finances less and surrender them more. Be open to what God wants to do. Be available. Jesus knew The generosity, wise financial decisions, investment, stewardship, 
doesn't just come from a doubled income or a better emergency fund. It comes from a transformed heart. Because then he gets to tell you how to direct your finance. He gets to direct you. And ultimately, everything is a gift from him anyway. So it makes sense, doesn't it? It's a logical formula here. And yet so many times our eyes get clouded with selfishness, with pride, with greed, with success chasing. And Jesus is saying that is not going to bring the results you think it will bring. It actually brings more darkness, more cloudiness, more murkiness to your vision than when you just surrender to me. Two eyes. The third is two masters. This is why polygamy has to be the most terrible punishment imaginable, right? I was just thinking about this because, and you're like, where are you going with this? Well, if you're in Utah, you would understand that a little bit better. What's funny to me is I I was thinking about this and just thinking about my own relationship with Lindsay. For instance, um, if Lindsay had two Johns, it's clear that what Jesus says here would work out. She would hate one and love the other, or maybe hate both. I would like to think she would love both, but probably hate both. Like that would be really problematic. Now, if I had two Lindsays, I would love them both for sure. Yeah, no question. That's, I don't want to get in trouble. But that's the point, right? Jesus is trying to make when you have two masters, two loves, they just don't work out. Like it it never pans out the way you want it to. And Jesus is saying, when you try to serve God and the pursuit of wealth and greed and materialism and success career chasing, you get disappointed because ultimately your heart, your personality, your wiring was created for a relationship with a God who will take care of you and your needs, your deepest longings and desires. Maybe they're money related, maybe they're not. Only God can ultimately meet them. You'll, be, you'll really hate the one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. And Jesus is trying to point out there's a better way. When I have your heart, your treasure, your resources, your stewardship follows. Your vision gets clearer. Your relationships get a little bit less cloudy with money. Your treasure becomes me, not just another pursuit or another hard decision. And Jesus is not saying here that we should choose between God and money. That's how I always read this passage. It was like, well, I can do one or the other. One's an ethical, one's a moral decision. I'm trying to figure it out. Which one should I choose today? Jesus is saying it is impossible to choose between God and money. You will only be able to choose one. It's not like a, it's an ought, like you should do this or shouldn't do this. It's a, you can't. It's just, it's problematic. It, it breaks down. I remember reading this story of Martin, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is a missionary for India for a period of time. And India is in, in the southern parts, which are incredibly volatile. I mean, they'd have hurricanes, floods. I mean, a lot of problems would occur for them. Their houses were often not super secure because they know that at any point this could happen. And you may remember a couple years ago, this happened in Midland, Michigan. Remember these crazy floods? And, and we had friends who have family that lives in Midland. And so it was like, yeah, talk about disrupting your foundation and your life. You feel incredibly insecure as a flood rushes in. And so this flood was raging through this small rural town in, in southern India. And this older woman, actually have a picture, it'd be very similar. This is another flood in southern India many years later was kind of stuck out on this island, but without any help, no people around. So this rescue crew actually finds out she's out here and she's going to die. She's just basically out there holding on to a tree branch, trying to, to buy enough time to get saved. And so this Indian rescue crew knows that this is really do or die for this woman. 
She's not very strong, and the waters are raging around her. A debris is flying through these muddy waters. And so she's on this island. She sees this rescue crew in the distance and begins just in her heart, just like you and I would, right? Begins to just be elated. It's like, okay, I'm going to make it. I'm going I'm to live through this. And so all she has is this branch, branch, and she has a bag of potatoes sitting right next to her. This bag of potatoes really in Southern India culture at that time was representative, not just of like, I mean, I love fries. So it wasn't just like a good thing of French fries in the future. It really was her, her entire security. It was the way that she was going to make money in the future. Potatoes and, and even just other produce were ways to barter for things you needed. It wasn't just like, hey, I grabbed my favorite food out of the thing on the way out of the flood. It was like, no, this is all I have. So this rescue crew finally gets really, really close to her, close enough to where she could just grab the side of the boat and they could pull her over. The waters are raging around her and she lets go of the branch and you want her to grab the boat and instead she grabs this bag of potatoes and the boat gets swept away in the floodwaters and they never see this woman again. So many times you and I are like that with God's resources and and our money. We hold on so tight, thinking, we're not gonna, I'm not going to get that back. Like, I'm not going to, I need that. How am I going to make money even if I survive this flood? And eventually, it was the one thing that separated her from, from real life, it was gripping tightly to what she had, even though it wasn't very much. Let's just be real. You and I live in a community where money can easily become an idol, easily become a pursuit, easily become our God, easily become something that takes priority and precedence over Jesus himself. Some of you talked about that initial uh, household income number, and that, again, that was just kind of a made-up number that they were using as a stat. But what's interesting to me is that Byron Center, the community that we're in, on average makes $20,000 more than the, the average household income in America. So to me, that's a blessing that can certainly be something we carry with, with gratitude and responsibility, but it means that we also can easily make that an idol and make that something that starts to get into our hearts and we may not even know it. What I think is cool, like just setting in, in the context of Jesus' words, what I think is powerful is that, and John Michael alluded to it, that our church, Center Church, is in one of the best financial positions we've ever been in. To me, that's something to celebrate for sure. But the other side of it to me is we don't just celebrate that for money's sake. We don't just say, yay, like we're great. Like, aren't we? We're killing it. We're awesome. Moving into a building. We're in a surplus. All those kind of things. To me, I sit here in awe as a pastor, as your friend. To me, that's just evidence of God transforming hearts. That is tangible fruit Not of you just making more money and deciding, yeah, I probably should give that because I want to tithe, I want to do this, I need more deducted later. Like, to me, that's not the conversation. To me, I'm so proud of us and you in the sense that that's God transforming hearts. I can't force you to give money to anything. Only God can press something on your heart, convict you, challenge you, inspire you to live a life of generosity. And to me, that's just an incredible thing. And this is a journey Lindsay and I have been on too. God has deeply transformed our hearts when it comes to money. You know, I got married uh, over seven years ago to Lindsay, and I, I think about that. And I remember when we first got married, as so many of you would relate to, 
we made nothing. <laughs> we just made very little. It was super easy to be generous when you got five extra dollars. Like when you have to tithe and it's $80, that's not a big deal. But to us, it was a proportion and it felt like a big deal. I remember uh, looking at our wedding pictures even later on. I remember just thinking uh, where we were in terms of our lives. And uh, I look at the wedding picture. I look at the day we got married. I look at those professional photos and I think, wow, I really, money didn't have a grip on my heart at that point. Again, because I had none. But number two, I was making more money. We had combined our incomes. It was like, we're in a good place. It took about seven days and a couple arguments later to get to a place where our marriage felt a lot more like this. <laughs> that was literally on our honeymoon. And that was not a fight. We just got caught in the rain. But it illustrates a greater point. Cancun was not as tropical as everyone told us it was going to be. But I look at that, and I think about as we've gotten older, as the decisions financially have gotten more difficult, you know what this is like. The, the, the complexity of finances has grown in our lives, as our incomes have grown in our lives. I, I think about it is so easy for me to let money grip my heart, and, and I tend to overestimate, overestimate my control over it and underestimate what God wants to actually do in a transformed heart through my money, through our resources, through our finances. Tim Keller, who's an author and theologian, says this about money, and, and I think it's worth noting before we move through the rest of the series. He says this, If you have money, power, and status today, it's due to the century and place in which you were born, to your talents and capacities and health, none of which you earned. In short, all of your resources are, in the end, the gift of God. That, to me, shifted my perspective when I heard it. Like, I didn't choose to be born here. I didn't choose, well, I wasn't born here. I didn't choose to be born in Birmingham, Alabama. I didn't choose to have the gifts and, and capacities and talents and even the good health that I inherit today. I, I, none of those are in my control center. But often I act like they are. And I tend to overestimate my ability to micromanage and control my own life and underestimate what God wants to do in my heart. You know what this looks like? This looks like the newlyweds who, in all the decisions and the fray of life, decide we're actually going to begin our relationship, our covenant before God. We're going to set aside some of our income for God's kingdom purpose instead of leasing that new car. This looks like the single retired woman who in all of the pressures of her life, all the pressures of her world, decide I'm going to downgrade my home to upgrade my generosity because I know that there's people in my life that are hurting and can't pay the bills. They make, she makes an intentional decision to let God have more of her heart and not just try to control more of the circumstances. This looks like the college student, the young guy, who decides I'm going to surrender my future career to God instead of figuring out how do I graduate and make the most money possible. I'm not even going to be concerned about that. I'm going to decide. I'm going to let God move through my heart. And the tension you and I all face right now, sitting in this room, online, wherever you're at, watching this later, we all face the temptation to just go home, reconfigure our budget, get a spending app, combine accounts. I mean, whatever. Stop buying things on Amazon for a week put a moratorium on prime, like whatever you need to do. We all are tempted to just go home and do that. And let me just tell you, that is a symptom addressing thing. What Jesus is saying is there needs to be a deeper work. 
If you really want to experience financial freedom and peace and joy and contentment, that begins in here. That begins with opening up your life to God. It begins by opening up your heart to God and saying, what would you want me to do in this situation? Jesus, how would you think about this? How would you steward this? How would you plan for this? And letting God speak into that moment. What I know from preaching on money, even just the last couple years, is there's a a greater temptation in some of us right now to say, oh, I didn't know the series was on money. I'm probably not going to, I'm going to go on vacation the next two Sundays. (laughs) I don't know. I've got some stuff that, uh, John, I feel really sick the next two Sundays. Like, and I'm just going to encourage you, and I'm encouraging myself in this, don't do that. Because God wants to do something so much greater than just reorder your budget or make you feel bad about how you're handling your money today. He wants to change your heart. He wants to transform who you are. He wants to bring you a greater freedom than just addressing a budget problem could ever do. And, and to be honest, those moments are kind of uncomfortable because money can grip us. And some, some of us sit here today, and I've sat here in moments like this like, I'm good. I'm glad he's preaching that for somebody else. I'm set. And then God starts to do some work in my heart. And then God starts to press on some things that I thought were locked away and good. And I didn't find out until much later they were closed off to his Holy Spirit's work. We tend to overestimate our control and underestimate our heart. And so I want to ask you three questions. I want to give you three questions. Hopefully these are a gift to you. You can't process them all right now. And I'm not even going to say, here's the application. Here's what you need to go do. Because I can't do that heart work for you. I can't get into the nitty-gritty of your life. That's the Spirit's work and His role and His joy is to work in you in that way. But I do want to give you three questions to process today. Is Jesus your treasure? Would your debit card history statement affirm that? Would it, would it align with your answer to that question? Is Jesus your treasure? Today, is Jesus your vision? Is He the focus of your finances? Is he the focus of your resources? Because really, at the end of the day, it's the decisions that come out of that question, they, they have to come from a healthy relationship with God. They have to come from a, a well-ordered relationship with our loving and providing and good, faithful, heavenly Father. Do, do those things align? Third question, is Jesus your Lord? If you were like sitting here and trying to be really clear and transparent, you'd have to wrestle with that like I have and just ask, Is Jesus king in all areas? Have I surrendered everything to him? Because here's what I know, and Mark Batterson says this all the time, and I think it's so true. He's a pastor in Washington. He writes about money, and he says, really, when you give God your heart, when you you surrender yourself, you start to believe in the reality that God can do more with 90% of your finances than you can do with 100%. And that's not necessarily a statement about tithing or an Old Testament principle. I think it's a a statement about our heart. If Jesus is our treasure and our vision and our Lord, we start to to get in contact with the kind of life-changing power that we all crave and need, including our money. So what I want to do is just invite you to pray with me. And I want to pray over you knowing that this is an area that is really difficult. And I'm going to ask God, would you just move in my life? Would you keep stirring in Lindsay and I? Would you move through our church? And so let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are present and real. We thank you that we don't have to fear the future. We thank you that in 
spite of, of chaos and turbulence, maybe in our homes, in our lives, in our jobs, that somehow when we offer our heart to you, when we let you into the deepest place of ourself, you actually bring us peace. You actually bring us joy. You bring us hope. You restore faith. You drive out the darkness and the unclear waters of our life and actually give us vision again. You give us focus and clarity. And so today, God, we ask that you would move in our hearts. We know you want to do something in our bank accounts and our wallets, but today, God, we're asking, would you just start with our heart? Allow us to be deeply transformed from the inside out, not just so that we could be better with money, but that we could honor you with our money. So I pray for the couple who sits here today and knows there's some tough decisions ahead. I pray, God, that you would begin a work right now in their heart. Pray for the student who's processing, what does this look like for me? What does it mean to start small, but to be faithful with what I have? God, I pray that you would begin working and excavating the things that need to change and be transformed in their heart. God, I pray for the person who finds themselves on the other side of the retirement equation and is asking, how do I maximize what I have? How do I leave a legacy? God, I pray that today you'd begin working in their heart. We love you and surrender to you and ask that in these moments, you'd remind us that you are our provider, that we don't need to fear, we don't need to worry, we don't need to be anxious about anything, but to bring everything that wants to pull us from you to your feet. So we bring it before you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, would you stand as we respond and worship together?